This episode of How to Save the World is sponsored by All Heart NZ, a registered charity dedicated to reducing, reusing and redirecting corporate waste to help both the planet and Kiwi communities in need. Learn more about the amazing work they do at allheartnz.org.nz. Hello and welcome to another episode of How to Save the World. My name is Tim Bat. And we have any worth. And we are joined by a pretty incredible guest today, a person who is a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit, one of the world's greatest ever multi-sports athletes, a Kiwi endurance sports icon, an author, an inventor, a world record holder, and an international motiv- motivational speaker, who we have been very lucky to grab a little bit of time with. Steve Gurney's here. Steve Gurney, woo! <laughs> <laughs> My farts do smell, though. I am, I am, I am basically human. Don't, a, don't get my ego too big, eh? Very Kiwi response to that introduction. Mm. But it's all true, you know? No, well, no, you're sensationalising oh, no. it. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I've had to do a bit of navel-gazing since I retired from sport, and you realise that, actually, what is success? We're measuring it in a Western way, you know, and perhaps I'm not all that successful. I've seen you touch on this a couple of times, actually, in some chats. This is interesting. So this, yeah. you retired in 2007 off the back of an ankle injury, I Yeah, understand. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what? what is, where have you gone mentally and sort of philosophically I've after I've been down a very deep, dark hole. Tell me about it. What's been well, happening? Well, actually, it's, it's pretty topical because it is mental health awareness sort of, the, well, the it last, is. It's not week only, it's about the last few years. Which, so. which dates when we're recording this because this episode will come out a little bit later on, but. Yes, right now as we're speaking, it's it's Mental Health Awareness Week. Yeah, so people are being encouraged to be more honest about mm. what's going on in their heart and soul and mental space. Because we all just look up to each other and think that everybody else has got it sorted. And Yeah, and Facebook doesn't help either when people only paste their A game, you know, they don't mm. see the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I've written a book, well, I've written three books, but one, one of those books is a pretty blunt explanation of what happened after that retirement you talk about and how I got really badly depressed suicidally so and mm. so I spilled out my story as as we we're encouraging others to do as well and basically you know I thought I was on a ladder to success but it was just a hamster wheel you know just stepped off it 20 years later and I'm still in the same bloody spot you know trying to prove something that I am good enough and to put it in a nutshell uh, you know my my general belief is that the the human condition is that somewhere along our childhood, we learn that we're not lovable or not good enough or some variation on that theme. And uh, we spend most of our life trying to fix it. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's what my racing was all about, trying to fix it. And, you know, it didn't. You know, winning races is just like, as Eckhart Tolle, you know, the power of now author, uh, tells us that, you know, we're we're looking for that time in the future once that we'll be happy. But the trick is, you know, the future doesn't really come. It's the trick is to be happy now and do what you can in this moment. And so it sounds like just based on the fact that you refer to the, the Western way of looking at things, is yes. how you used to have that perspective that you've gone away a little bit from that now or maybe you have a more holistic view of what success can look like. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people as they grow older, you know, um, we get a bit more retrospective and a bit wiser, I think, about what really matters in life, you know, and we're becoming to... You know, a lot of research now is coming out saying that social connection, you know, look, is, is I mean, a lot of loneliness is rife in older people. And I'm certainly starting to see that. And the social connection, those sorts of things are more a measure of success than what you've got in the bank or what mm. car you're driving. 
Well, this is interesting because within the context of our podcast about sustainability and the environment, there's a lot of intersects with that. And we've we've spoken to, well, a couple of activists really already. Um, Sophie Hanford, we had on recently, who was one of the national organisers for the School Strikes for Climate. And Robin Malcolm as well, who's had sort of a, a, a lifetime of advocacy and um, and protesting and doing all of that good stuff. And there is a real social component of collective action and coming together to try and change something and improve practices. And um, so it seems like that stuff is, is, you know, feeding in at the moment, especially with climate change stuff. People are coming together to coalesce. Um, and actually something I was interested to ask you about, Steve, specifically, seeing as how we're talking a little bit about mental health, is you um, have spoken a bit about how you had nerves, especially early on in your career, and had to figure out how to how to sort of perform with those or solve it and the anxiety that you get performing at such a high international level. And there's a phenomenon at the moment where a lot of people are being quite paralysed by all of the dire information that's coming out about climate change. Mm, yes. And I wonder if you had any sort of advice or, or methods that you've taught yourself about how to almost like weaponize the anxiety or how we can keep functioning um, in spite of some people right now feeling very overwhelmed. Good question. Oh, my God. This is this is a good podcast. Yeah, we're <laughs> um, straight in there. <laughs> yeah, in the deep end. Because well, I just also wanted to add to that. It's like, to me, it feels like when people are talking about their mental health issues, to then throw in that extra layer of like, oh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket too. Yeah. It's like, and that's the context of the conversation for so many people. Yeah. Well, rule number one, you know, rule number one that applies to all of us, to anything, I believe, is... Take a deep breath. Our grandmothers were right when you said, she said count to ten before you say anything. Um, but the, the doesn't the, make for a good podcast though. <laughs> <laughs> Nine, eight, <laughs> seven. <laughs> no, um, well, the point of uh, of that really is the point I'm trying to make is, is to be present, you know, uh, and to, to actually see the situation without judgment, without being wrong or right. Just step back and get a perspective on what's happening here. And so, with respect to nerves. Okay, so I, I've learned to step back and observe without judgment, without saying, Steve, you're stupid idiot, or any judgment like that. Just say, well, that's interesting. What's the purpose of the nerves? What are they trying to t teach me? Or what, what's that part of me wanting to say? And then you realize that the nerves are just there trying to warn you of, of some danger that you've imagined or that part of you has imagined might exist based on past experience. And then, So then from there, you can then... Take take some concrete steps and um and and figure out how to how to solve that. So, for 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 me, for example, racing, yeah, I feel the nerves. Well, what I can do is uh, it's imagining all the things that might cause me to fail at my goal, a bike crash or you know things going wrong, and so I can then plan for that, how to prevent it. Uh, but I might have to get some more skills. So you know, might be have to get better at kayaking down a, a rough river. Um, uh, and, and then once you've planned for it, you can also, I mean, that's that's the, the, the fence at the top of the cliff. You know, you can also do a few things about the ambulance at the bottom. You know, if I do get a, a hole in my kayak, make sure I've got a, a roll of duct tape and a method of drying the, the boat, that sort of stuff. So it's about being that listening to that part of you who's making you nervous and then taking action from that so it can reduce uh, your, your nervousness. You also, it's also important to thank that part of you. So look, Thanks, you. You know, I really appreciate that 
you're running actually on an old program from childhood. Mm. Um, I've got a better program now, thanks. Uh, so there's this little another saying that says, what you resist persists. So if you, if you try and push it away and say, ignore that part of you that's trying to give you the warning, it will just hang about. So you've got to actually take it on. And it's a bit like um, seaweed, you know, that long kelp seaweed. When a wave comes in at, at the cliff face there and there's, you see the wave smash onto the rocks and causes a huge um, energy explosion of waves and water. By contrast, there's those long tendrils of kelp on a rock just a few meters out further. The wave comes, the kelp moves with the wave silently, um, calmly. The wave passes and the kelp moves back again to where it was. So so that's accept, the kelp is accepting the situation dealing with it and let it pass whereas the rock is saying no 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 and boom so that's that's another thing to do with nerves is to accept that the nerves are a part of being human deal with it and move on mm. you got to move with things a little mm. bit and yes. i do like that as a broader analogy for mm. our our ecological situation mm. too it's like because it is something that uh, is a pretty dark feeling that just layers on to other dark feelings that we can have and and to just if we can cultivate that attitude yeah, of just of just letting of actually just not putting a judgment on it. Yeah, and not sort of. Weirdly, I've seen uh, some ch- some interviews with Bill Hader, the comedian, who's like an SNL longtime alumni, and he talks about how to this day he still struggles with anxiety, but he was absolutely riddled with nerves, like would vomit every time he was mm. going to do an appearance on mm. SNL. And he's one of the greats; like he's considered one of the best in the last twenty years, SNL players. Saturday Night Live, sorry for those outside uh-huh. the comedy uh, community. And he, he said a very similar thing to you, Steve, in terms of the real turnkey moment for him was going, this is a thing that's happening. I need to not ignore it. I need to acknowledge that it's there. And he talks about sort of making friends with it. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, he, he talks about it like it's on his shoulder. And he goes, oh, you're back. Oh, hi. Good, yeah, good yeah. to see you again. Okay. I'm, I'm listening to you. That's fine. So I've, I've got to go and do this thing now, but I know that you're there and that's okay. So and another part of that is to acknowledge, it's a, it's a reframe to say, well, actually the fact that I'm feeling nervous means this is really important. If I was feeling nonchalant and didn't care, then mm. I'm not spending my life doing things that matter. And so it's a, bit, it's, a bit, it's a matter of congratulating yourself for taking on stuff that's outside your comfort zone. I like that. That's that. That's a good reframe. And mm. so, do you think that that um, sort of goes a long way to getting out of that paralysis cycle? Absolutely, in, in taking action. Yeah. There's another thing you can do. I mean, there's other stuff like there's an NLP process called anchoring. Well, NLP, neuro linguistical programming. Yeah, neuro linguistic program. Yeah. So it, it sounds fancy, but it's just understanding what do people do in their heads and in, in terms of what they say to themselves, what they imagine, and those sorts of things. And and working with that to make it more useful. So an NLP process called anchoring, actually there's many other modalities that use anchoring, and we do it naturally. Like when I say to you, popcorn, what comes to mind? A microwave for some Butter. reason. <laughs> or, or the circus or the, the movie theater or something. That's anchoring. Yeah. The, the smell of popcorn is anchored in your brain as an experience you've had. So it's just doing that on purpose. So with the nerves, you can have an anchor for calmness. So you imagine the times that you've been calm and relaxed and powerful and uh, anchor that to a physical gesture you do and then anchor uh, or, or actuate that physical gesture when you're feeling nervous and that reminds you to be nervous uh, to be <laughs> to be <laughs> powerful to be calm, yeah. calm yeah, and powerful yeah. Yeah. yeah there's so many people I'm talking to who are my age in the early 30s who yeah. were like genuinely getting slightly riddled with anxiety about oh, the climate true, and the true, environment true, true, true. Yeah. and I think one thing that you have said and I've heard this from other people even on this podcast 
is taking action yes. is so important. And I picked it, that up too. It's yeah. not about attempting to solve climate change by yourself. No. But it's a, there's something very powerful about taking some small little action, some sort of change. It could be connecting with a group um, that is focused on these issues and just starting that communication. It, it could be initiating conversation with friends and talking about yeah, it. Yeah, all, the, all could, the little things you do around the house. could be going to a march. It could be start composting. It could be, mm, you know, mm. decide that on Mondays you're not going to eat red meat. It, but yeah. just there's something very powerful about taking it into your own hands, even in a small way, making a change, I think. Yeah, I did a couple of small things uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's just like positioning the recycling bin into a more handy place. So I'd use it. My flatmates would use it more instead of chucking stuff in the rubbish. Um Pulling this out the window. I'm interested to pick your brains because you're very <laughs> psychological with this stuff. You've got like oh. the engineer and the psychology thing is coming <laughs> through. Oh yeah. Uh, you were saying you, you you're also just uh, building a house and purposefully not putting in a space for a dryer. Yeah, well, uh, and and make a really easy to use clothesline so you yeah, can dry yeah. stuff. Yeah, and this is Queenstown, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so most people the, would think that they needed a dryer. That's quite hard. Yeah, well, I put the clothesline is just a, a piece of rope on two pulleys, but it's um under the eaves so that no matter if it's raining, your clothes are still mm. getting dry. So mm. and and making it accessible so your flatmates or your family members or whoever is living in your space will feel it's just as easy to use that as the dryer, if not easier. And more satisfying, you know. So, um, just removing those barriers, isn't it? Yeah, to just removing doing just, the things you want yeah, to do. Yeah, little steps. It can be so overwhelming. Like we were talking, waving and I. We tried talking. not to, didn't we? Yeah. We we're having great conversation in the car. I no, no, you we're going to save it. Save it. Keep it on the microphone. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but we were talking about um, uh, booking air flights. You know how hypocritical it feels and. When I'm booking my flights, I just tend to quickly gloss over like a ostrich who's put his head in the sand, you know, gloss over the carbon. Do you uh, think about that stuff, Steve? Oh, I do. It's really getting, uh, you know, on my conscience. But uh, there's nothing I can do about it that right this moment. I feel like I'm a bit powerless to do anything about it at the moment apart from book less flights. But And offset. And offset. But uh, my conscience, well, I'm not in that space yet, but... I'm slowly getting there by doing other little things, you know, becoming more and more conscious by doing things like planting the garden last week, you know, mm. uh, pulling out the winter stuff and putting the veggie gardens. Are you a big gardener? No, <laughs> I find it really hard. But uh, um, I, a, a couple of years ago, I said, right, there's a really nice sunny spot. I'm going to build a couple of garden beds. And it was pretty easy, actually, pretty nice, whacking a couple of waratahs and some macrocarpa boards and getting some horse boo from down the road. And, um, Making a garden is really, I found it really, really, really satisfying. And then to see these little seedlings grow and eventually eating stuff that was, you know, half an hour was growing in the garden, I'm now eating it. That's pretty damn satisfying. And that's just a little step. And it, and it's so nice pulling out the weeds. I didn't realize it would be so nice, you mm. know. Um, but it's something you, you've got to do a little step at a time. And it can be often be overwhelming to think, oh, I've got to plant a garden. Where should I start? Well, just do a little bit at a time and eventually get there. And, now I'm an avid fan of gardening. It feels so good to have your fingers buried in the dirt. Mm. And there is a concept called earthing, isn't there? That we you're actually getting rid of static charge um, by digging yourself into the into the. Yeah, it turns out there's quite a few health mm. benefits, like the microbes as well in the soil, yeah. and it's why kids, little kids, eat dirt. 
apparently. Huh. They actually, it's good for their gut and all of that. No, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't rec- we're not dietitians. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, don't, I, don't feed your kids dirt and then go, <laughs> Waverly uh, on this podcast told me. Yeah, don't sue me. <laughs> well, eating dirt actually refers to crashing off your bike, doesn't it? Not actually eating <laughs> Yeah, true that. Yeah. <laughs> we probably should have led with this, Steve, considering our, our podcast is about sort of the environment and sustainability. But... Um, tell us, like, where are you at with with these sorts of things? I mean, you're a you're an athlete, you're a motivational speaker, you write books. We, like, what is your thinking about these sorts of issues? Where are you philosophically okay, so and mentally says, with these? Yeah, things? it says that it's something that you really strongly that the environment something you really strongly care about. Of course, I mean, uh, you know, since day dot, I've always been encouraged by my folks to get out and play outside and and um and you did you <laughs> took that to heart didn't you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah oh and then i was in the boys brigade as a as a boy you know we got tramping a lot and i really developed an absolute love and joy of being in in the wilderness out in the uh either on a mountaintop or or actually just in the bush just hiking a normal old track with with good old new zealand bush the smells of the mm. ferns and the dirt and oh it's just so rejuvenating so i i have a very close affinity with being connected with nature and disconnected from the other connectedness of, mm. of social media and that sort of crap. So um, uh, so I've always been interested in, in, in creating greater accessibility for other people that, you know, I'm a role model too, uh, encouraging them to get out doing um, physical exercise in, 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 in nature, not around at a stadium or a gym. Um, but there's other things like when I lived in Christchurch, um, I was one of the instigators to get the sewage discharge out of the estuary. Um, ideally, we would have no sewage discharge, but at least it's better to have it in the ocean than into the estuary where there's kayakers and swimmers and shellfish gatherers and yachties and stuff like that, and kids playing. So, you know, we do our bit where we can. And um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm actually yeah. interested to hear more about the estuary stuff that you were involved with. So what's the story there? Oh, I mean, it's, it's historical. It was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But, you know, I lived in Christchurch on the edge of the estuary. I used to use that as my training ground for coast-to-coast Is training. It, when you're sort of heading out towards Sumner? Yes, Is that's that right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so the Avon Rivers and the Heathcote Rivers flow into an estuary, which then flows out into the ocean at Sumner Beach. And so there's a lot of recreation. There's um, three yacht clubs there's people gathering shellfish all the time. There's in summer. There's kids or oh, and me swimming. There's kayakers. There's the shags. <laughs> the birds. I stress. There's a beautiful big rock called Shag swimming Rock. Steve and shag, the shags. I think it, in the earthquake it like fell shag, down. It's or Shag Pile itself. now. Yes. Right. <laughs> or it's Shagged Rock. <laughs> so what were they do- like? What was happening before? Oh, who 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 was it? The council had a waste discharge going yeah, out it's there, historically been a sewage treatment ponds in bromley and oh, my, my memory's a bit fuzzy on how it exactly was but something like this so it it, it kept growing as Christchurch population grew and so they needed to keep expanding it and they wanted to expand it again and finally a few of us said no not enough's enough you know we um we need to do something about this let's get rid of sewage if we can by you know encouraging reducing the production of sewage like can we do composting toilets and those right. sorts of things and industrial waste let's look at that and see if we can do more recycling there were you actually seeing firsthand the estuary change like i'm assuming you were out there on the water oh yeah no kayak right by there's as the tide goes out of the estuary they open the gates and all this poop on waste goes into the estuary so i'm um, seeing it 
you're actually seeing it and we feared falling out of our kayaks in that area and there's mm. a yacht club right next to it it was crazy i mean in the early days it used to, when christchurch was smaller it probably wasn't a problem but as the population grew, we didn't keep, of, yeah we didn't that's one up. of the things um kate meads talked about when she was on the show with us that it's we have a perception that the the waterworks, the sewage mm. treatment plants, kind of magically deal with all this Absolutely. crap that we put down the drain. And actually, they're, they're quite good at taking the um, the, the solids out. Um, but really, if it's heavy metals or yeah. or the bleaches, like anything, paint, plastic, you know, paint is plastic, anything like that, all they can do is really just dilute it. And so what's uh, happening, it's slowly crept as technology and our knowledge of chemicals and heavy metals and what have you uh, oh, not just our knowledge our use of it it's creeping it's a, it's a slow creep isn't it you know in the, in the early days perhaps we didn't have so much toxic waste mm. now there's more and more uh, and it is a slow creep and we've done mm. nothing about uh, well we, we're a bit slow we'll lag behind you know what we can do about reducing and recycling and preventing so what did mm. you do so the easter is slowly filling up with poo you were nervous about falling into basically a bio waste hazard well, yeah, it's not just poo zone. it's as as waverly said it's the um the, all the other nasties that come with it uh and uh so there's a big argument the mayor said at the time he said oh no you can drink this stuff it's the output you know it's so clean so <laughs> you go first. Like, there you go we got a protest we got a whole lot of like-minded people together we got together we converged on the estuary causeway and we collected a jar of the out, output water and challenged the mayor to drink it. And he claimed that it was. And that was kind of the turning point. We said, okay, let's do something about this. And um, so we said, you know, ideally we'd rather the whole thing was cleaned up, but that wasn't going to be an option. So we said, well, let's discharge it out to sea where there's no recreation at least until we can do some more about it. So that's what happened. And um I remember that. Yeah. I was living in Christchurch at the time. Yeah, I remember two, that. There's Dora the Borer. But, uh, there's a machine right. that dug underground mm. and put the pipeline out to sea. So it's not the ideal solution, but it's better than humans getting poisoned and sick. And um, some people got terrible skin problems and that sort of stuff. But you mentioned as well that in tandem with that, you were sort of looking at other waste reduction um, techniques as well. Yeah, well, that kind of opened my mind to think, well, actually, it's be more answerable to what we're doing to the environment. If we want to use all these chemicals and, and have a, consumerism lifestyle we'd have to take more personal responsibility for the waste we put you know that we create and as Waverly said you know, so many people to think okay out of mind they push the button on the toilet mm. and, and they poured something down there or they flush something down the kitchen sink or the tub and they think that's the end of it, but it's not. To be and fair, we would just geared up to think that. Like yes. we, nobody kind of is ever, yeah, is ever saying like there's no warnings on products. Or no. you just, I think it's fair enough to assume that if you if it's okay to buy it, then mm. it must be okay. Like why on earth are we selling this stuff that actually harms our waterways I, I, and that's such a kills our fish? Thing isn't it? Because I think we assume there's some authoritative body that's given it a, a tick or an okay yeah thing. and but there it's like isn't. just there's no mechanism to stop it being sold basically there's there's quite strong stuff around if we're swallowing it but mm. apart from that mm. um, one solution is to as part of the school curriculum we get taken through the waste treatment plant and explain mm. where, where it all goes mm. follow the pipeline from our home drains out to this treatment plant to the environment and it's just a bit matter of awareness really and it's just because as a kid i never really envisaged it we never were, t- were told it was never I like you say, That's slow fun. creep. I quite like mm. that because it's a very mm. forgiving statement, really. It's not like we all intentionally went out to mm. create the situation, but no. um, yeah, we've ended up on it. I mean, I'm horrified. I remember my first car I bought. 
as a teenager, you know, and I changed the oil and some oil went down the drain. And I didn't even think about it until a couple mm. of years later. My, I clicked, my light bulb went on. I thought, shit, where did that oil actually go? And I realized. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been painting for years, yeah. like houses or whatever, and, and just washing up and just, just not thinking about where mm. the paint goes. Now I'm living rurally and all of the systems we've got and the, yes. the, they're all, there is no way. Like they either go into a septic tank or they go into a disposal field or, you know, into a stream or, or whatever we do. There is literally no place that I can put a toxic. Yeah. Like if I'm painting, I'm thinking, yep. oh, what do I do with the paint? What do you do with it? Well, I... <laughs> put it on the wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> try try and um, minimise it as much as I can. Yeah, I realised that I didn't want it to go down any drain. Um, yeah. And so it was just one paintbrush I had to clean. And so I took it right into the middle of our driveway, gravel drive. And I, I, so, and I just picked the point that was going to be the most absorbent, the most isolated from any waterways and thought, well, you know, at least that's giving it a decent chance Man, to... Every, everyone should um, do like a month of living like that yeah. away from the connected it systems. Was, you know, despite all of this rubbish-free stuff that I do, it, yeah. was, it was just that point when I realised uh, for paint and all, all the stuff that goes down the drain when I suddenly had to deal with it myself. And that's how, a good point. Yeah. I think we need to... Uh, the only way to change people's opinions really is to, to, to get to their values. You know, how does this affect their personal values? And that's one way. Is, I mean, another example of that is I've got some friends who went on a, a year of sailing with their two kids. And... On a yacht, you have to be so conservative of hot water and fresh water and food you've got because there's only a li- there's a limit, you know. And and they came back and I think they were off living with some, stayed with some friends for a week and their friends were amazed how thoughtful these kids were at reducing their consumption of stuff. Quick showers. And yeah, exactly, exactly the point because they've been forced to go in one of those situations like Waverley, living rurally. And I think that might be one of the really good answers is maybe camps for school kids, I don't know. Yeah. That sort of stuff where they actually have to go and live that lifestyle mm. for a week or it is. Month. It is our affluence, I think. We were mm. saying about that too, yes. weren't we, how it's, it's um, all very well buying organic or um, being vegan or whatever, but it's actually the, the money we've got that we're able to spend that increases our carbon footprint probably mm. well mm. beyond people who mm. aren't making those choices. This episode of How to Save the World is sponsored by All Heart NZ, the charitable trust helping Kiwi corporates be more responsible with their stuff. All Heart NZ are providing tools and expert advice to support businesses to improve their sustainability and social good, and not just in New Zealand. By providing expert support services and tech solutions, they're helping tackle huge international problems like modern slavery embedded in global supply chains. Thank goodness for All Heart NZ. You can learn more at allheartnz.org.nz. Um, you mentioned so with the Eastery episode that you had, mm-hmm. and you actually said, were you part of forming a trust or something that sort of sorted that out? Oh, it was, it was the Ehutai Trust, which is already existing, but um, I think we're working. I mean, as I say, my memory's a bit foggy on how sure. it exactly was, but that we were working in tandem. Yeah. Well, the the question I had was, um, there was obviously a time when you you know you saw like a distinct change. Because you do a lot of globe trotting and you have for many years, do you do you feel like you've seen the effects of climate change firsthand at all as you've been travelling around? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, there's the obvious ones of pollution. You know, like when I'm going to some of these Asian countries for races, just the amount of plastic you see on the beaches is just so sad. You know, there's all these bottles and shit washed up. But we did a kite buggy 
trip across the Sahara Desert. So we're really proud of this. Actually, we used wind power only for four of us to cross the Sahara Desert. It took, it a month, it took us a month, two and a half thousand kilometers, wow. using just kites. And that's one of your world records, isn't it? That yeah, one, yeah. Trip? Yeah. Um, oh, the record for distance has since been broken for kite travel, but um, I think we're the first to, well, first we know of to cross the Sahara Desert by kites. Amazing. And so we did a lot of that down the coastline, and I was just tears to my eyes, the amount of dead stuff down that coast. Um, dead fish, dead animals, washed up dead dolphins, but then... Really? Oh, and a lot of it, though, is the, 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 the amount of junk and plastic and human product, byproduct that was washed up on the beach causing such destruction. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to describe the sorrow I feel mm. from that. That's um, probably the most impactful observation I've had is the, 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 the coast of the Sahara Desert. And that was where a lot of your motivation has come from. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just the coast either, but can I add to that? You know, some of the towns we went inland to, to get supplies. Um, to get to the town from out in the desert, you, you have to pass through some wasteland, so to speak. And you'd see, we, we people were just driven out and dumped rubbish in the desert for it to blow all over the show. And there's just stuff everywhere in what you thought might be a pristine kind of desert is actually not. Because I imagine it really pristine. No. Nah. Mm. That's what David Attenborough has been saying about Mm. having to keep get the shots for his documentaries closer and closer to because the wide shots are just picking up the rubbish or the destruction or these these so called pristine places Mm. are actually having to be really carefully framed. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And there's another trip I did. Mount Rinjani um, is in um, Lombok, uh, Indonesia, and the government there asked me to go and investigate the possibility of a, a running race up this mountain. It's the highest mountain on on that. Um, piece of land and it's a national park and I thought oh yeah this is cool so I I thought I'd run it in a day see if it's feasible and there was not one spot you could stop on that track and not see a bit of litter and this is a national park and I mean most of the time you'd see you know at one meter intervals there's all sorts of plastic wrappers and stuff you know that that trampers and runners and hikers just dropping just drop drop yeah and so where, where I guess I'm, I'm trying not to be judgmental here, but we are reasonably developed, you know, a Western country, and Indonesia and those, you know, uh, Sahara countries, Sahara Desert countries, they're um, South South African countries are not as developed as us, so it's going to take a long time for the education side of things to catch up. Meanwhile, our natural world. Um, wilderness is just being further and further degraded by us being human, human, it, and mm. you know. <laughs> and then you get to the bigger question. I get a bit overwhelmed at this stage. I think, well, the answer is to stop producing humans at this stage. Is uh, that where you're sitting at the moment? Oh, is that, I am. Is that the the planet's full. I don't believe that myself. I don't. I don't subscribe to that. Well, okay, it's full until we stop abusing it like we do. <laughs> I hear you. I yeah. think that's right. I think the systems need to change. Yeah. This is kind of the big, this is one of the, you know, biggest, I think, questions of our time at it the is. moment. Because I is. think there's a lot of people, particularly, um, you know, really staunch activists in the environmental movement who do sort of subscribe to that belief that it's like, nah, no more kids. We're all done here. But I just... I, I've been having a lot of chats recently. I actually had a, a good chat to my wife last night over dinner about this. Um, I've just got an unshakable 
Are believe, you planning 10 kids, by the way? Absolutely not. I'm one of four and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> anyway, you've got this unshakable belief. Sorry. I've got an unshakable belief in humans' ability to change things. And obviously it goes both ways. But the fact of the matter is we invented plastic not 100 years ago. And we've already, because it was such an effective product, managed to proliferate it to the point where it has killed a whole, like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of species. You know, a lot of marine life is getting wiped out. But if you kind of take away the negative connotation from it and just look at the power that we have, we went plastic rules, we're going to make an absolute truckload of it, and we did. And I think if we are able to do some of the things you're talking about, appeal to people's values, get real on the science, manage to convince people without paralyzing them with the sort of dire real situation that we're in, our ability to change things is astronomical. And that's why I don't buy into the thing of no more humans, because... We, we just have an amazing capacity to make things and invent things and create things and change yeah, we situations. We also have that same capacity to absolutely screw things. And we've we? proved that pretty, pretty resoundingly at the moment. We're consumers who are just basically driven by self, uh, you know, selfish desire to have things for ourselves. And I, 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 we're, kind of, we're very good to sort of pseudo-philosophical territory now, but yeah. I really like, I believe in people. Yeah. And I think that there's a thing that's going on at the moment where people are being confused for their governments. I think that, um, you know, it's very easy for the international community to look at places like America or even like Bolsonaro in, in uh, Brazil, who seems by all accounts to be a massive asshole and like a, a, basically a climate change denier and he's burning half the Amazon down for a quick buck, you know, in the short term. And these powerful guys who are leading these countries at the moment I don't think they're actually very reflective of the population. I think if you talk to people around the globe, average, you know, normal citizens of the countries, they actually really care. Like this will, this will obviously date exactly when we've taped this, but we had the school strike for climate change today. Yeah. So I was just at that before I um, came to this record. And apparently they said on the loudspeaker, this might get updated, but they said there was 80,000 people there. And I was like overwhelmed with the amount of people there. And just the feeling that it was like ordinary, everyday people give a shit at the moment in a big way. And it's people like like Greta Thunberg at the moment who are becoming these lightning rods for change. And it, it does feel like we're making progress. Obviously, it needs to be happening quite a bit faster than what we're doing at the moment. But, but yeah, there seeing is the that, young people yeah. out there and the passion behind it and their dedication, it was like, super inspiring Mm. it's interesting guys because i think you're both bringing up two like really valid sides of like an age-old argument which way you know are we are we essentially good or not and i think you're both right in terms of we can easily i think we could easily have more people on the planet if we were living in a completely different way apparently our biomass like the weight of humankind is roughly about the same as ants (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so it's like yeah, you know there's 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 the ants are fine um and and it's really the solutions we've got to things uh turning out to be you know there's some unintended consequences to those solutions so we need some new ones what we do have as well is when we say when we talk about humans how much of that is just our western worldview because we actually have hundreds, maybe thousands of examples of indigenous cultures around the world who have lived in a smaller version of what we're going through mm. now where their whole world it hit a limit. Like, say, New Zealand would be a great example of that, Aotearoa. And it, 
got to a point where people like say Easter Island they made some choices they made some different choices and they hit their limits and things collapsed and then there is there's literally thousands of examples of humans not not other but but us as humankind who have made quite different decisions and gone you know look at look at um, say before Pākehā arrived in New Zealand, uh, Māori had gone through a transition of understanding like this is finite. We've just gone through all the more. This, you know, we mm, can't carry mm. on like this. And they, they're on an island. They're already, it's already really intensive. Like they're actually running out of food if you think about it. They've just gone through all their big game. And so they've got less food, they've got more population. And they are able to say the sorts of things that we can say now. It's like, well, if I don't take it, that other tribe's just going to take it. Um, if I if I don't feed my family, then they're going to grow bigger, and we, you know, and it's just exactly the same sort of logic. But they did it, mm. like they actually did it in a situation that is, if not more life and death than ours. And they all somehow, all these different iwi, managed to agree on yeah. a new set of principles. Yeah, the cultural mechanisms that were used are really interesting. Like, you know, declaring an area to be tapu, which has sort of a spiritual component. But in some respects, another way of looking at it is like, well, if we overfish it, there's going to be nothing left here. So we're going to kind of say, this is a no-go zone. Mm, mm, and it's kind right. of and the they, same as being like a protected, what we would consider like a protected area or... And they managed it, mm. like competing tribes managed it, and that's not the only example. Like we've, like this whole Western phenomena. Like yes, it's the most powerful force we have on the planet, but it is also an anomaly in terms of our human um, condition. Yeah. So the Easter Island one's a good one an example. You know, someone chopped down the last tree knowing mm. it was the last tree mm. what was going through their head mm. and <laughs> well the, the, there is another author ronald wright who has written a book the short history of progress and he he uses the analogy do humans listen from the black boxes of crash civilizations mm. previous to us and easter island is one of his examples mm. the, the sumerians is another the mayans is another one and mm. i mean it just he he opines that humans by nature don't really listen to failures of generations be, be before them or civilizations before them mm. it's just we're just we're just motivated by what's in it for us yeah. so mm. here, to take a step back from all this stuff what i would love to pick your brain about for a bit steve is goal setting stuff oh yeah so within the context of um we've got a few problems <laughs> we've got a few issues at the moment we've got a, a big climate changey ones and then we've got smaller sort of environmental ones you're talking about the rubbish that's strewn around in particular environments mm, mm, mm. If we want to make some changes, what are some good goal-setting techniques and ways of changing behavior and actually, like, getting shit done that you think are effective? Yeah, How good question. How do you these things? This is, this is an age-old question, really. So my approach now, you know, the, the further I get down the track, the, the more I realize um, goal-setting is only successful, or you're only successful at getting your goals uh, if they are aligned with your values or your purpose on the planet. So if they, if your goal you set supports your purpose for being alive or your purpose that you think of, of, of what you're here on this planet for, then you'll go through anything to achieve that goal. So I think that's the key is, is get intrinsic here, not extrinsic, not, you know, ass-kicking methods. It's about um, hmm. how do you appeal to someone from their heart. Would you say if there's a person who is very anxious about the environmental stuff, do you think that that suggests they do have a value that's geared towards they want to? Oh, absolutely. Anxiety or nervous, yeah, that sort of, you know, that, that emotional response means it really matters to them, of course. And uh, 
so I think that's the way to do it is is to figure out if we're going to set goals, we, let's let's make sure that they're articulated or designed in a way that people can hook into that um, what's in it for me sort of thing, you know, with them. You know, if it supports what's what people really care about or what they really want, then they'll they'll be right behind it. If someone wants to get get something done or change behaviour in their own life, like. Have you got any um, hot tips on how to get I've done? I've heard you speak, Steve. Just put some words in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, about when you've done some long enduro races, the amount of time and energy you put into just like carving off the end of a zipper and stuff like that. And well, I've heard people talk it, about this with you as yeah, well. Yeah, it's pretty legendary. Well... Okay, there's, there's oh man, where do I start? I can talk <laughs> well, yes, like because five what we'd like you to do this. is apply this to climate change. <laughs> right, okay. So one, uh, I've talked already about. <laughs> He's lost. He's totally I'm lost. I'm overwhelmed. You oh. really have thrown a lot at you. Um, I've, I've just mentioned, of course, that you design the goal. You know, how does this support your purpose on the planet? So that's the first step. Um, then there's a whole lot of techniques um, and, and, and principles that follow on from that. But, you know, in terms of overwhelm, well, you don't get to the top of a mountain in one jump. You know, you you take one step at a time. So let's pick the easy steps. And the first little step, you know, is is what do you think is in, within your control that you can do to get you the first thing? What you can do? What can you do in the next five minutes that'll get you started? The hardest part actually getting, is just getting momentum up, just getting taking the first step. So, um, referring to Waverley's I you know I talk of me chopping off zipper pullers and the toothbrush handle you know this is how we start an adventure race we accumulate all of our gear that we have to take in the race and then we go about finding ways to lighten the load you know there's a saying that says if you want to travel far and fast lose your baggage so um, that's emotional baggage but you can also apply that <laughs> in, in a physical way so we think righto we chop off a zipper puller because it's a metal thing we place it with a tiny bit of string so that saves you know a couple of grams and, and gosh it's incredible and we do take a toothbrush on the ra- on, on these races um, to stop ulcers forming in our mouths cause, but, but we don't take one each we take one that we share amongst the team Whoa. and we chop the handle off that you know so it's lighter so just I'm giving you examples the first aid kit you know, it doesn't say in the rules that the tubes of ointment have to be full so we squeeze half of it out and put that half in a ziplock bag and we throw away the the tube container and half of it. So we end up, you get the idea, these these tiny little things we do. So what did, what would it add up to? Like, you, are you saving a half a kilo? Yeah, 800 oh. grams per person on average. It's supposed to be a metaphor, Waveney. You've gotten oh. distracted by yeah, the just, mechanics. Of. You've just taken off another track. <laughs> I don't know if it's worthwhile. <laughs> no, well, 800 grams to 900 grams per person over a week. Cumulatively, that's a lot of blisters, and you know, a yeah. lot of time saved or energy saved. But the point is, someone says to me, oh, Steve, Chopping off the zipper puller, that's not going to win you the race. And they're right, it won't win us the race. But the zipper puller plus the piece of webbing off the belt plus the toothbrush handle plus the tube out of the womb, it all adds up and that's the cumulative. Here's the gold. It's all the little bits that add up. It's the accumulation of all those that gives us the the advantage. And it's a psychological advantage. And we'd be lined up at the start of the race, you know, getting ready for the on the start line 10 minutes before the start and our packs are... Oh, you know, noticeably smaller and lighter than the the USA team who's next to us, lining up, getting ready to start. And the USA guy looks across us at us and says, "Oh, Steve, uh, yeah, I think you might have left some of that compulsory gear out of your pack. Are you, are you cheating?" 
And I said, no, mate. So I pull the, open my bag and show him, you know, I unzip it with a little piece of string instead of the metal tag. And you see his jaw slowly drop to the ground. <laughs> and uh, as I show him all the little things we've done, and then the gun goes, boom, and off off we go. And imagine the psychology of the USA guys. Thinking, oh, shies, are we carrying, you know, uh, 800 grams, cumulatively two and a half kilograms more than we need to in this race. Um, compared to what we've done, knowing we've gone through with a fine-tooth comb, uh, optimizing our, our chances of winning this race to the, you know, to, to the highest level. And so there's a psychology there as well of um, knowing that I've you know I've gone out and planted my vegetables. You know, it was ten dollars from the vegetable um, from the nursery to to buy these seedlings. Knowing that I've just spent that ten minutes planting the garden, it's only a small step, but it's add that to me shifting the recycling bin closer to the window so my te- flatmates will use it more often instead of putting stuff in the rubbish. Add this to the clothesline under the eaves. Add this to all these other little things you do and you think, actually, I'm making quite a bit of contribution to the planet. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And it, then, that once you've made that one little step of planting the seedling, whew, I'm, I've actually got the ball rolling and you think, oh, I can now feel energized enough to go and do those other little changes. Fantastic. And yeah. before you know yeah. it, you've got a way of life. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. So and then there's that power of the disassembled crowd, like you were talking about being at the um, climate change rally today, Tim, and, and that power, I guess, that you feel mm. all together and just the fact that you see the numbers and it's like, wow, there's X number of people here. Like, regardless of whether these people went to the rally today or not, um, they exist and they're all doing the same sort of stuff that Steve's talking about. And sh- that's where the power is. It's a direction that we yeah. face, yeah. isn't it? Exactly, yeah. direction we face, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's a, that's a pretty good place for us to probably round off. <laughs> Steve Gurney, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It, is, it has been a, uh, a real privilege to have you here on the show and to get to hang out with you for an hour. Um, so thank you for making the time. Hey, and I'm inspired by the difference you guys are making to the planet. Thanks. Oh, keep keep going. Eh? Communication is the way to go. We're trying. Mm. We're trying. Mm. Um, if if people want to track you down online, Steve, what's the best way for them to do it? Oh, and read your books? SteveGurney.co.nz. Easy. So easy. Google. Cool. Hey, uh, if you enjoyed the show, please tell your mates. Chuck us a little review. Five stars is very helpful um, to get other people to find out about the show. But otherwise, Waveney and I will catch you on the next episode. Until then. Bye. Thanks again to our sponsor, All Heart NZ, who are improving the planet and the lives of Kiwis through reducing, reusing and redirecting corporate waste. Check them out at allheartnz.org.nz.